What's up, everyone? This is Sharagam, and I want to welcome you to episode 49 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Noah of Hanzo Gardens, based out of Washington State. We dive into how the brand has developed and grown over the last several years, as well as his personal history as a cultivator and hash maker. He also shares with us some upcoming projects, including a jump into the Washington recreational market and much more, so definitely stay tuned for it. Thanks to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests this year with my favorite caps, his V2 caps. Their seal is unmatched and you can find them on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass or on his website, ZachBrownGlass.com. A huge shout out to the lifeline of the podcast, every person that makes up our community on Patreon. Their support allows us to continue making new episodes and content. I am forever grateful to anyone who has ever supported the platform for allowing me to do what I love. If you enjoy the podcast and you're ever in a position to support, you can find us at patreon.com backslash the hashishin. That's the hashish I-N-N. The link is also in our Instagram bio at the hashishin or on our website, thehashishin.com. Shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our homies and partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. They've been assisting hash makers all over the nation from small batch to commercial settings for years now. The quality of their bags is proven. The consistency of their customer service is proven. So if you wash hash or you press rosin, do yourself a favor and visit Rosin Evolution for all your washing and pressing needs, especially if you value peace of mind. And if you would like additionally to support the podcast and save money, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI 710, all together saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to our newest sponsor, Toro Glass, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass, where their imagination and passion for cannabis and its resin has inspired innovation for the way that we all consume it, keeping them at the forefront of innovation while maintaining their extremely high quality of standards that they're known for. So no matter where you are in the world, whether you're looking for high-end quartz in their terp slurpers, grails, or core reactors, or looking for high-end glass and design in their rigs and tubes, you can find it all at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Hashhead Outfitters, who you can visit at hashheadoutfitters.com or on Instagram at hashheadoutfitters. They make small batch, incredibly comfortable clothing for hash lovers. What I love is the quality of the material they use to make their gear. It's 100% cotton. It feels amazing. It has a nice weight to it and the colors are popping, including their red and aqua lines. Their limited drops of low profile snapback caps have been yielding some sick colorways as well, including a tiny drop of their hasher themed denim snapback. So if you love hash and you love comfort, then visit our homies, Hashhead Outfitters, at hashheadoutfitters.com or on Instagram at hashheadoutfitters to grab the gear that makes you feel extra cozy with that dab. Again, a shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with its V2 cap this year. They have an unmatched seal and you can find them at 
ZachBrownGlass.com or on Instagram at ZachBrownGlass. I appreciate you listening and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 49 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shiragam Amir. Today, I am stoked to be here with Noah of Hanzo Gardens. You can follow them on Instagram at Hanzo, that's H-A-N-Z-O underscore gardens 2.0 or at Hanzo underscore gardens. What's up, Noah? How are you? How are you doing today, bud? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. I know you've got a lot going on. So again, I appreciate you taking the time to talk. No, thank you for having me. So let's talk about a strain that you're currently running that just won an award, but that you're not personally a big fan of the grease bucket. Yeah, it's uh, something that we just released for the first time, like you said. He's got flavor profile of burnt rubber tires and grape candy. Definitely has a very beanster feel to it. Really, really heavy on that rubber tire, you know, aspect. Like you said, I'm not a fan of it. It's just not my my style of terps. But I can't let that deter, you know, let it deter us from from uh, from putting it out there. The rest of the circle really liked it, so we decided to to try it, and I mean. It, it definitely shows that, that the people really like it. So we look forward for what she has to offer the rest of the year. You know, we're going to do a, a couple more things with her. Keep an eye out for her. Cool. Yeah, I'm actually interested to try the Terps. I told you that I oddly do like those kind of Terps sometimes, depending. But part of the reason of asking is the fact that you don't like it. Like you said, the rest of the crew does like it. People like it. And when we talked about it, you told me that in the end, it's not about you, right? It's about everyone else. It's about finding unique profiles. And really, it comes down to that the brand is not based solely on your personal opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, for, for the longest time, I always based everything on my, my personal opinion on, on flavors. As as the brand is getting bigger, there's there's a point to where I just realized, and and it was you know just being around being around the rest of the crew and and then telling me, look, it's the, in order to grow, you have to take yourself out of the equation, you know. And so I allowed myself to do that, and uh, I mean, proof is in the pudding. So, what terps do you like typically, personally? gas you know very very heavy on the gas i'm an older guy you know in the 40s and i've always grown up with those style of terps you know um i was really never into anything fruity or lemony you know citrusy never into uh, anything orange at all i was just really into those gases you know cushions of heavy hitters i've always done drywall as a kid so i was breaking my body down all the time and I, I found when i started smoking those heavy hitters that definitely was uh, my my cure all you know and so it definitely just pushed me towards towards that direction you know and, and i've always just kind of just stayed there 
Now that's a word that we use a lot, I feel like, in like the cannabis sector, gas. So I'm curious if you can give us a little more. I know you mentioned, I think, cushes, but what does that mean to you? Man, something that very just has that jet fuel, you know, smell or taste, you know. Something that when you hit it and and you taste it, it's it's very astringent, you know, it's it's just borderline offensive, you know. Sometimes there's there's not there's not a lot of individuals that, that like that flavor profile, you know, and I do. I just can't get enough of it. I can't. Like the gorilla glue, for instance, you know, the the uh the sour cut, you know, the the OG, the old school sour diesel, man, I'll tell you what, that sour diesel back in the day, oof, the NY, you know, just stuff like that. That's that's what that's where I really, really fell in love. You mentioned the effect of those type of profiles being kind of what like leans you that way. Do you feel like they have more of a quote unquote narcotic effect? Yeah, they do. But for me, it was more of a medicinal effect. You know, like, like I said, I've, uh, I've been doing drywall all my life. And when I started smoking those, I noticed right away that my body felt so much. It was like an instantaneous think relief, you know? And that's why, like I said, I just veered towards uh, those strains right away. You know, I, I, I just searched, I would search for those. Every now and again, we, you know, I'd, we'd get a little something fruity, but it was more for, uh, to hang out with the girls and stuff. Wasn't for, for anything else. Now the GMO is not so new, but it's relatively new in the context of things. Is that one that you like or something that you would say has gas to it? Or is it more like of a funk? Uh, you know, I would say it's a, it's a mix of both. It definitely has gas, but there's this funk to it, you know, and definitely one of, one of my favorites. I was, I was growing it for the longest time when it, when it first came around. The only reason why I'm not growing it right now is because everyone, you know, you, uh, you grow the same apple a hundred, you know, a hundred times people start to get uh, tired of that one apple and want a new apple. But for me, it stays in my rotation. I mean, I have a jar sitting right here of it. Boom. It's, it's definitely uh, one that stays, in, stays in, in rotation for sure. I, I'll never get over it. Yeah, funny enough, the freebie that you got with the GMO, you do still run. That is correct. And uh, she happens to be my number one strain. You know, that's the one that kind of put me on the map and everybody uh, knows me for. And it's uh, my Cherry Kush. When, uh, like you said, I, it was gifted to me when I had bought the uh, GMO and, and he told me it was extremely special. So I knew right away not to, uh, not to let it go. And after running it, it blew me away. You know, it, it grows exactly like the GMO. Up until the last two weeks, like I had told you, you know, one goes left and one goes right is the best way to explain it. They both do their thing. But at the end of the day, the cherry kush just, uh, she just, she's just the winner. She has, she has the same profile as the GMO, except she's got this much sweeter back note and, uh, she's extremely heavy. She's an extremely heavy hitter. 
You know, she, she's not for the faint of heart. You know, we've, I've been growing her seven, eight years now. And, and I know it's still going to get me high every time I smoke it. She's one of those strains that'll never leave my stable ever, ever. Was part of the reason that it was given to you was because it did grow similar to the GMO? Because at that time, your interest was really in the GMO and acquiring those genetics. You know, no. He just told me that this was his winner. He he liked it over the GMO. And I mean, I just paid this man a chunk of money and him telling me this. Like I said, I knew it was special. I, I knew I had to take care of it. I knew. Is part of your formula in a grow room having plants that grow similar to each other? Or are you willing to grow plants that are vastly different? No, no. Uh, when I first started growing 20 some odd years ago, I tried, you know, that whole, you know, let me put seven, eight different strains in the same room. And I'll tell you what, it just doesn't work out. If you, you know, I, I, uh, I finally broke it down just to, it's either one room or one strain per room or two strains per room. And that's it. No more on their left. And they definitely have to grow similar to, to one another. So you can feed it the same program. Now, the cherry kush, when you originally started growing those strings, were those for hash or were they for flour? They were for, flour, for dry flour. Absolutely. Yep. And so um, what I would do is after I would trim it all, I would take all my trim and then I, I would make hash for myself. And, and that was it, you know, and I did that for a couple of years. Then one day I just, I told myself, you know what, let's just bite the bullet and see what happens. And so it was, it was a, a room of cherry kush and GMO and I just ran it all. And when, when I got the return back, I was literally blown away from not only the quality, but you know, the quantity, the quality, just everything about it. I, I mean, I, I had really never seen anything like that firsthand. What do you think was the factor that made you quote unquote bite the bullet? I really love my dry trimmed ash, you know, a buddy of mine, he was, he was making rosin with his whole room, you know, and he was making hash and he kept on telling me, but I, a, I didn't, I didn't have any, any clientele. I didn't have any, you know, like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about it like that. And I just told myself, you know what? It's one of those, you either go big or go home type deal. So I just did it. Was that your first time fresh freezing cannabis? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I used to make cash before, you know, for like 20 years, but I was just like old school stuff and it was all outdoor, you know, running out, out, outdoor stuff. Never, never anything indoor, not whole room, fresh frozen stuff. Never. What was that experience like? For example, you've done it, but in a way, the stakes aren't so high, maybe, as to running that one room. Nerve wracking, nerve wracking, <laughs> because I mean, I'm telling myself I've got, you know, six months of my life invested in, in this that I just froze. And now I'm going to put water to it. And like, I'm going to put this, I'm going to put it through this process, not knowing. 
you know, like not knowing. And, and at the time, you know, um, I, I had never seen that, that jar tech where you put, you take 20 grams of some water and ice and throw it in there and shake it up to see whether or not your strain is even going to dump or not. You know, so I, I was literally on, on this whim and poof, it paid off. After you saw the returns, you saw the quality, were you kind of like in? Yes. Then after that, I've never done a room for dry flowers since then. None of my personal gardens have ever been for dry flowers since then. I've turned everything into hash and rosin since then. So you kind of resisted for a while to a certain degree because you weren't familiar with it. You didn't have like familiarity with the markets and whatnot. But once you saw that, what made you be like, all right, this is it? Oh, well, just me smoking it. Me not only enjoying it, me and then and then having my friends experience it and having them like seeing their react. I was like, let's go. <laughs> like and right away there's um already a couple of guys that were doing rosin, but they were packaging it correctly. You know, and so at first when I was making rosin, I was just getting it in these white clear with the with the white tops you know that's then i thought to myself we got to put a brand on this you know we need we we got to we have to once i put the brand and and started putting a side wrap and logo making it look professional that's when people really started to take interest you know i mean product is products are great products are great but when you get what the people want things tend to really flourish, I think. And I feel like you've kind of answered this with what you said, but what is it that you feel like the people want? Literally branding. I, I mean, and I, I can't stress it enough. You know, every, everybody wants, everybody wants like new flavors and, and whatnot. Don't get me wrong, but the branding, the packaging, just, you know, one of the things you said has been the coolest part for you of developing the Hanzo Gardens brand has been bringing in your friends. And you just mentioned smoking hash with them and that kind of being the thing that kicked off the brand. So talk to us about how special it's been to be able to bring in your friends and you know grow the brand, not only with yourself, but with others helping you. It's the greatest feeling in the world to see my friends flourish. It's it's pretty simple. There's really no greater feeling than, uh, than being able to look around and seeing everybody happy. Everybody's on the same level. That that's it. We are all we are all the same individual. We are all equals. You know? Expanding on the idea of being able to see everybody happy, how do you feel like it's affected their lives? Oh man! Well, I mean, they're able to do um, they're able to do things, you know, with the with their families, you know, that they wouldn't be able to do, you know. So, like I said, uh, just just allowing everybody to be a little bit more freer. That that's it, you know. Like that's that's the ultimate goal, you know. It's we're we're not trying. 
We're not trying to get rich. We're not trying to be, I mean, we're not going to become millionaires by any means, but if we can live a little freer each day, I think, I think that makes us a little richer, you know? Do you feel rich in being able to do what you love at this point? Absolutely. I'm living my dreams every day, sir. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, when you're 14, 15 years old, hanging around the homie smoking weed and you're like, man, it'd be great to be doing this the rest of our, you know, my, our lives. Da, 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 da. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm here. You know, I'm here. How do you feel like creating a brand and kind of building on it has changed things for you? Oh, it's changed things dramatically, you know, because like, like I said, building the brand has attracted individuals that, that I would have never attracted, you know? And so it's, it's open doors that have been extremely great, you know, and that like for all of us. So yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Like I said, it's key. I really dig the artwork. I dig kind of the whole look of the brand. Tell us where you drew inspiration for it. I've I've always uh, had a, a love and passion for dogs since I was a little kid, and uh, you know the the love for Japanese art. You know, I I was breeding dogs for twenty years and whatnot, and that was just uh, you know one it's just a perfect fit. You know, food, dog, and herb go hand in hand, at least in my world. And you were telling me that the actual dog in the image is almost like a mythological type dog. That's Almost like a lion type thing. Yeah, the food dog, you know, in uh, Japanese uh, culture and whatnot. They're there for to protect, serve, you know, make sure we're off evil spirits. Strength. You also mentioned to me last time that part of that inspiration or attraction maybe to Japanese culture came from mm-hmm. your aunt. Tell us a little yes. about how she kind of inspired you, not only with that part, but also with the cannabis. Oh yeah. So <clears throat> my aunt, she's my godmother. And, and uh, she was the one that, that really uh, got me in, into uh, loving Japanese uh, culture and art and dogs. She, uh, she had dogs all her life. And uh, like I was, you know, I, I lived with her for a large chunk of my life. That's what I grew up on, you know, and she just, she showed me what true love was, you know, what compassion is. By, by allowing me to be around these dogs and just the animals in general, he showed me what the, how to be kind, how to be caring, how to be loving. She definitely was a true, and she was the, she was a warrior, you know, true inspiration. Like I said, she showed me, uh, she showed me what true love was, what compassion was. And I think by her allowing me to be around that, it gave me the guidance to be to be that as as an adult, and so I've always had dogs, you know, all my life, and and even now, you know, I've got I've got three little Frenchies, and uh, I make sure that what she showed me, I'm showing my three kids now, you know, how how to love on these animals and whatnot, and I think by showing kids at an early age you 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 build that interior structure you know to be a great individual 
I feel like naturally that kind of led you into the breeding. Yeah. So it just went hand in hand, me being around dogs all my life and, uh, and, and loving them, you know, it was, I wanted more. And in order to get more, you're either going to buy them or you're going to breed them. And I just started breeding them 20 years later, you know, did Shih Tzus, Pit Bulls, Bullies, Frenchies, Labs, did a bunch of dogs. What did you learn over those 20 years about genetics? Time and patience are key. You cannot take something and expect to get results tomorrow. You need to trust the process. You need to believe in yourself and just let it be. Trust, just trust your program. Your program will work itself out as long as you trust it, you know? And you got to keep at it. You just can't put a little bit of time and effort into it and then hope and expect it to do its thing. You got to keep working at it day in and day out. But trust the process. Like I said, it's not going to come today. It's not going to come tomorrow. But it is going to come. Like, that's just it. It is going to come. There's going to be that day when it comes. How helpful has that been as a lesson to you with cannabis and now kind of growing into, as you talked about, a brand? Just just trusting the process. You know, when I started growing, you know, I remember it was like, I always wanted to be in there. I always wanted to be in there. I always wanted to be in there. You, you can't. I mean, you are not going to make the plants grow any faster. Like I said before, trust the process. Walk away, let it do what it needs to do. That's just it. And so now on this brand, what I've done is I brought in my friends in and I'm trusting in them. I've trusted in, in this process as this growth process and, and my, my friends have helped me grow this, this brand exponentially you know oh, like and if it wasn't for them oof this brand wouldn't be where uh, where it is today absolutely how important has it been to in a way learn to trust them to be able to do their thing it's been extremely important because it's uh it's allowed me not to spread myself too thin it's allowed me to grow as an individual because now I know that I have these individuals that I can rely on that uh, will do whatever is expected. Like they, they go above and beyond what I ask. To be honest with you, I don't even ask. They just do. They show me. So I don't want to talk about this to sensationalize it. But I do feel, based on our prior conversation, it's a big turning point for you. And that's the fact that you've stopped drinking for the past couple of years. What has that brought to your life? Uh, everything. The moment I stopped drinking, my whole life had turned around 360. Absolutely. Everything just started working for the best, I will say. I mean. 
A, I stopped being complacent. I started holding myself account- accountable. And uh, yeah, people started believing in me again. That was it. Now, ironically enough, the drinking in part was happening in the garden. You were actually just working in the garden. And that oh, was- yeah, you know. Well, I mean, I've always worked by myself solo in the garden. And it's, and it's uh, especially at night. Everybody goes to sleep. That's my time to myself. So what's, what's better than to smoke a couple of, you know, doobies and drink a couple of beers, you know, listen to a bunch of music while you're working all night, you know, but that goes from one day to the next. And then 25 years later, you're still drinking 18 pack a day. Doesn't, it's not healthy. It's not healthy for anyone. So then, uh, I lost a friend of mine and, uh, you know, I just led me to say, man, I tell you what. Today's the day. Today is the day. So December 9th, quite quit. That was it. And it's been over ever since. Two years. A little over two years now. Mm-hmm. I mean, just one of those, it's just one of those situations that, you know, those sad situations that something good becomes of it. And that's what happened. You know, I lost a friend. I realized this isn't good. I need to change myself. And now we're here. Yeah, you know, a lot of times pain is the biggest teacher, man. It sure is. It sure is, sir. Well, cool. Do you think uh, this is a good time for a smoke break? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) All right, sounds good. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 49 with Noah of Hanzo Gardens and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Kevin of Lifted and Dina, the homie The Real Cannabis Chris, David of Raws and Evolution, Turp Wizard in Michigan, Garland in DC, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Melt Walkie J, the Chile Relleno Burrito, Macro Melts in SoCal, Res on Reserve and Solventless AF in Michigan, Nick the Intern and the homie Big C. We appreciate each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. So we started out the conversation talking about the grease bucket and it winning recently. Then you talked about the cherry kush and how that's going to be part of your stable forever. And it's been winning. Talk to us a little bit about your experience with Cherry Kush at Legends of Hashish. So we submitted our first entry to Legends. And then uh, my two uh, reps had went down there. When they were down there and they went to go receive their judges' boxes, they noticed that our entry wasn't in there. And this was fairly late in the evening. So they called me and told me, hey, you know, our uh, gear's not in the box. So right away, I get online, check the mail and tracker, and lo and behold, in red, it says, pow, contact postmaster, yada, yada, yada. We all know the rest. <laughs> you know, so my jaw and heart sunk instantly. And, uh, I was going to, you know, tell the guys, man, tell you what, just enjoy the show and pack it up and come home, you know, at that point. Then the next day, I sent a text out to 
Addison, who was running Legends, told him what was going on or what had happened. And then I asked him if there was any way to we could re-enter. He said, absolutely. So my guys, you know, re-entered. And uh, we ended up taking Captain's Choice Awards and the uh, Artist's Choice Award home, which was something else, you know. We uh, we definitely took a big gamble, and it paid off, you know. So it's definitely a uh, Legends of Ashes story, you know. Definitely one for the books. We went through a lot to uh, to earn those two awards, but... Uh, once again, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do it without my guys. Small Circle, Ash, and Ross Pocket, those two guys, man. Those are the real heroes. And thanks to Addison for allowing us to uh, resubmit that entry. That was a blessing that he, that he uh, allowed us to do that, you know. So it just worked out. One of those things, man. You got to, I mean, we were there. We had extra gear. Let's just go for it. Just to clarify, though, it was the same, basically, entry. It was all... Correct. All, yep, it was the exact same entry. Cherry Kush. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a pretty crazy scenario. It's really cool that you guys obviously ended up winning two different awards there. And I think it also is really interesting that the way that it all worked out just shows that, like, you're normal work if you want to call it that and your quote-unquote competition work are basically the same they are the same i don't do anything special with my competition work everything that that i put into competition is all of my block like my block work is my competition work i don't do anything special and i've never have i don't take any special little lot little 10 gram lot or 50 gram lot and do anything special to it nope I grab whatever's inside the jar, put it in, you know, what what they tell me and send me. Now, going back to the idea of competing, what do you feel like it's brought to you? Or maybe the better question is, what has it brought to the brand? It's allowed more individuals to get their hands on the brand. Absolutely. You know, it's put the brand on the map, so to speak. Now there's there's this uh, hype that is starting to be built around it, which, you know, that's what we want. But uh, yeah, no, um, ever since ever since Legends, it's definitely helped. You know, everybody, uh, everybody has been extremely supportive. Everybody is that everybody who has reached out has has showed nothing but love. You know, yeah, definitely been good for us. Legends was great for us. Is it something that you continue to look forward to doing? Legends or just competitions? Competing in general. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. You know, um, it's fun. It allows us to connect with other individuals that we normally wouldn't be connecting with, you know, because, man, I know myself and I'm not one to go out. I stay at home work, work in my lab, don't go do much, you know? So doing these events and actually and, and meeting like-minded individuals, that's something that I would be, you know, more 
willing to attend, you know, just instead of just norm, you know. I think most most hash makers are just reclusive individuals. And so these events allow us to get out of our comfort zone and connect with like-minded folks. You know, I think that's good. For sure. I definitely can see that. And I've seen that with various live events. People really like connecting with each other. And then everybody kind of goes back and, you know, does their own thing. And then you kind of reconnect again. And it, like you said, it's fun. Yeah, you know, it's fun. And and I mean, like I said, we don't get out. I mean, like I don't get out much. I'm sure most hash makers don't get out much because we're working. We're in the lab trying to trying to figure it out. Right. We were talking about this a little bit during the smoke break, but talk to us about how you go about choosing what you're going to enter into a particular competition. Hey, I ask. You know, because it's not just me, it's, you know, it's the circle now. So I ask everybody, you know, what, what they think we should enter. And a lot of times it's, it's really, it's like, who's the judge, you know, like who's judging because that's, if you know the judge and or the judges and their flavor profiles, and that's what you, that's what you want to be finding that to enter in, you know, like if you have whatever f- flavor profile those judges are wanting, that's what you want to enter. Or you just want to be entering your, to your number one and that's it. You know, there's, there's the competitions that allow you to enter, you know, multiple strains, but like we were talking about, you know, like there's some that you should just literally be, bring your best and, and that's it. Yeah. And it's interesting and kind of difficult too, because like you said, in the end, it is a subjective thing. I mean, there are some criteria that need to be met, you know, as a judge or a judger to, for a sample to make the cut per se, but outside mm-hmm. of that, it comes down to a lot of like personal preference to a certain degree. Right. But, well, okay. Once again, let's talk about that grease bucket. My personal preference would have been, no, I don't want to enter that thing in that competition. But all of us as a group, you know, my circle was like, no, bro, we need to enter that. You know, so I think me having a, a, a crew that we can decide on is crucial to have versus just one person's opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the you more know? opinions you can have, and obviously you have to value those opinions, but... 100%, 100%, you know, and... and uh, you know, and that's just it. I value everybody's opinion in my crew, everyone's, because I put my body through a lot in my life, and there's some terps that I can't taste, ban, or smell. You know, and so I rely on you know everyone else for the for that. One, one being my little nephew. You know, he's he's you know in his mid twenties, and he's got a great nose you know another one my friend ross Bacher, that guy man he needs to insure his nose and and whatnot just because <laughs> that that guy whew, he can and man you open a jar he'll tell you what it is he's good but uh, just having just having individuals around that can taste other profiles that you can't that'll be like hey man wait a minute this one's the truth you know, and then everybody being like, oh, okay, now I see what you're saying. 
sometimes, I mean, I, I'm I'm sure you've came across, but you you smoke, you know, something, and you get whatever pro- profiles, but then you smoke it later on, or you know, a week later, and you you get a totally different set of profile off of it. Yeah, it depends on the resin. I think a lot of times it depends, like, on quote unquote how fresh it is, or mm-hmm. a lot of for sure. Yeah, and some of them change more than others, so it varies. It's difficult to say. Yep, it does. It's a it's a hard one, you know. But like I said, just having having multiple opinions that's that's key. That's key, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the Tri-County Valley area, which is where you're from. You're only the second person I've talked to out of Washington, although Washington seems to have a really pretty deep history with cannabis. But that area in particular is a little different. Yeah, they don't they don't like cannabis around here. As a matter of fact, last night my city finally allowed us to have rec store here in uh, in our city so now they're going to vote on where to place it but you get on the map of washington and you look up you know places to grow weed and it's all green except for my county it's red <laughs> so yeah they don't they don't like it around here so you know gotta remain that a recluse little ninja if you will and part of that you explained to me is the fact that there's a very strong farming community that, in essence. Yeah, we're a major, major agriculture-based community. Farmers, they definitely run the city. They, you know, what they say goes. And they definitely don't want that green, the devil's lettuce grown next to their, <laughs> to their crops. That's what one farmer stated at the council meeting last night, the devil's lettuce. That's pretty funny. Well, yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things progress. It's like the one county, I think, that's like a holdout in Washington. And you guys have had laws since, what, like 98 or so? That is correct, since 98. So, yeah, it's it's my county, and then there's like one other county that's just right down the road. And that's, you know, we're the, we're, we're the ones that you're not allowed. But now that's being overturned finally. So welcome to the 21st century, I'll say. Yeah, things are changing, man, for sure. And they keep changing. Yeah. Yeah. My my city, like downtown, you can't even own a pool table downtown. They don't allow pool tables to be in any restaurant, in any establishment downtown. Kind of weird. Like they super weird. <laughs> they just make the yeah, they make the weirdest rules around here. They don't want you to have fun. Let's just say that. So you've been cultivating since 98 as well? 96, yep, yep, early, mid-90s for sure. And you mentioned this a few times, but you referenced doing the drywall earlier. And in our prior conversation, you mentioned that, you know, something that happened on the job kind of led you to take the cultivating more from like a hobby status to going in a little bit of a different direction. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I was working for the union doing drywall, and I fell off the scissor lift, broke my back, so retired after that. I was eating a ton. I mean, the doctor was just feeding me pills left and right, and 
it was getting pretty bad for me. So I told myself I need to, I need to figure some out. And like I said, I used to smoke back in the day. And so I started smoking again. And the moment I started smoking in my body, it was just this instant relief. And I told myself, what am I doing taking these pills? So I started growing, I started growing weed again. What were some of the things that you were running back then? Do you remember? All the TGA gear. <laughs> Anything from Subco. So, I mean, because I had a buddy that I went to school with, and he was really good friends with someone in their crew. So he would have just all kinds of stuff from, from Subcool, you know? Yeah, yeah, from them. So that's what I was running way back in the day. And what were you finding? Because I've heard like a range of experiences with people with the TGA gear. I remember running their space dog. That was, you know, pretty good. I ran that for a couple of years. I was also running his soil. So I was just putting plants in, in bags and, you know, running them under the, under lights, HPSs and whatnot and getting midzy weed. For sure. I remember I thought I was growing some super good stuff and my friend coming over and be like, yeah, bro, this is okay. This is a <laughs> nice try. <laughs> like he put me, I was like, what are you talking about? This is that fire. Dog. He goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> so when he told me that, I, I remember telling myself, okay, wait a minute. I think I need to get back on the like. I need to get on the ball here. Let me figure some stuff out. Then just switched it up. I remember started running um, Canna. I think when I when I switched up and started running Canna, you know, that's when I when I started seeing better results. <laughs> so initially, you said you were running that. I think you used to call it like a super soil, right? Yeah, his super soil. Like and like I said, I just opened the bag, throw plants in there, and let's rock. Easy peasy. And then you went from using that to growing a little differently, but were you using the same genetics? No, no, no. I like said, so uh, after my friend telling me that I was growing minty weed, I just grabbed the whole TGA project in general and fucking went a different route. Got some stuff from Crockett Farms, DJ Short. I don't even know, to be honest with you. Probably some other stuff. Yeah, that's fair. It's been a bit. Yeah. So one of the things that I found interesting when we were talking about, and this kind of goes to the point of maybe your friend having seen better weed, is that you mentioned that basically the majority of the early time that you were smoking, it was all pretty much brick weed. And that you didn't really start seeing better weed until later, even though you were in Washington. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, so growing up, that's pretty much what we were, what we were, uh, Smoking was brickweed, and then uh, you know, like in the in the night in the late nineties, commercial came around. You know, beasters came around. You know, but man, in the younger days, it was all red blood brickweed breaking up, coming out of coming out of trucks. That was. Yeah, another thing that you brought up that I found really interesting, along the same lines, is the fact that you said when you started seeing some of the better weed, it was from people that were like outside of your group, right? So that the people that you were smoking with were mostly Hispanic and they were seeing a certain kind of weed. And then that some of the white kids from maybe up more North or something 
we're seeing some of college. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's what, and that's exactly what it was, man. Them skater kids and white kids, man, kids from college. It's like, what was that? I remember this man, this one kid, and he was a skate. He was a skate. You know, I don't want to say his name, but he he was he was a dope man. You know, he was he was a dope man in in school, and so he was the one. And I, he came back after a couple of years, and so like I said, it was later on. That's what he was, his personal smoking, man, he would open his bag and it's like, what is that? Like, I know what you're selling us, but no, Doc, what are you smoking on? We want what you're smoking on. Right. And it was coming from Seattle. Whoa. I never smelled nothing like that before in my life, man. It's stuck to the bag. I remember you, you'd be able to take a, a piece of herb and you could stick it to the wall and it'd sit there for like an hour plus. Like what? That's the truth right there. Green. That this funky smell to it, you know? Like a perfume. Just something I never smelled before. Different. You know, when you hit it, when you when you smoked it, you're like, whoa, this is like a floor, like a just perfumey, just wow, everything about it. It's so attractive and sexy. You know? <laughs> Totally different from that brickweed that you know would come out of the diesel, diesel trucks out of the gas can. <laughs> yeah, you told me you actually saw some uh, big oil cans that uh, some of that stuff came from. <laughs> oh, just how it was, man, coming off the trucks. But again, you know, going back to kind of like that idea that when you watched that fresh frozen GMO and cherry Kush, when you saw that weed, where, where you're like, all right, cool, like this is the standard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember when, you know, like the BHO days, you know, were, were around my buddy, he would always say, if you're not running nugs, you're, you know, you, you're going to get shit. Like fire in, fire out, dog. It's what it is. And so you take that same concept, transfer it over, fire in, fire out. You know, your, your, your end product is only as good as your starting product. Now, during that time, and you mentioned this earlier, you did start seeing some hash. Where did you start seeing that from and like, what was it like? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've been making, like I said, just traditional hash for 20 years, you know, running bubble machine through uh, bubble bags and then uh, taking that whole patty, freezing it. And then after that, just sieving it on fucking cardboard sorry excuse my language but put it on cardboard and i used to have my entire two-car garage filled with three by four cardboard sections the entire garage and i would have pathway that walks in between so i can go and flip all of my hash you know every couple days and it was a pain it was a pain it got to a point to where it was too much for me i stopped and this is obviously coming from dry material, like your trim. Yeah. Yeah, it was dry out or it was, you know, dry it was or it was dry outdoor material, you know, from the homie. Never any good material. No, I mean, never any indoor. <laughs> yeah. And you had a homie who had some family up or down, I guess, in NorCal that you guys 
got to visit and you got to kind of see where the bubble was coming from before you actually started making it yourself? Yep, yep, yep. And so I remember going down there with them and asking us, like, well, how do you make this stuff? And my friend's dad's like, oh, yeah, you want to learn how to make it? Sit right here, here, little buddy. And he <laughs> gave me a five-gallon bucket. He put some, I had to put some herb, ice, and water in there. And he made me stick my hand in the bucket. And he's like, mix it low, soft, until you can't mix it anymore. And I'd put my whole hand in my hand and arm and mix it until my whole hand and arm was numb. And pull it out. And he's just sitting there chuckling at me. And then he finally uh, upgraded me to a bamboo stick. And he was like, okay, here you go now. Have at it and do the same thing. Yeah, that's how I learned, man. Fucking him making fun of me. And I'm always curious to see how people were smoking the hash. Was it a combination of like bowl poppers, knife hits? Oh, yeah, but absolutely. Ball poppers. And then, or he'd, uh, he'd have a, a metal screen. And so, because he was sieving his hash, his hash would do it. It always looked like brown sugar, you know, just small little granules of brown, little dark brown sugar. And so you can just take a couple of granules, stick it up on top of this, that steel screen, throw a little bit of light to it, and whoa, game over, buddy. And did you like the hash smoke? Like, was it like this kind of extra oomph to the smoking the weed? Oh, yeah, it was completely different, you know? It was way more floral, you know, way more sedative. Way, yeah, way more pungent for sure, all around. I don't even know why I smoke weed. But then it was like, back then, only growers had hash, you know? The consumer, that never found its way to, to the consumer. And if it did, it was always, you know, like the shitty end of it, you know? Not, not, never any, never any high quality hash, at least where I'm from. We never got no high quality hash around here. You know, I remember my friend, he would bring these one little, these little pucks and they were hearts and it was this mango hat that you would have to break out and you, and we would take knife hits with that stuff, you know, but that was like the best knife, nothing full melt like that, man. So what year was your first dab? Do you think? Oh man. Oof, BHL stuff, oh, man. I mean, only BHO days coming around 2014, 2013, 2012. So right around there. Red hot titanium. Oof. Dark. <laughs> dark oil. Man, I remember that. Oof, wasn't good. You just didn't feel good, you know? <laughs> you know, and so I, I really like didn't smoke a lot of BHO. Back then, you know, I was just grown herb. And so I just, I was a joint smoker. I've always, always, my aunt, she was a joint smoker, you know? So that's kind of how I was. I was just a joint, joint smoker. I didn't learn to roll joints because I always had a friend rolling them or I would buy boxes of the cones and just stuff cones. But then one day, my friend, it was in the morning, I'd say six years ago. Well, let's see, 2003, maybe 2019. 
<laughs> four years ago, he hits me up one morning. He's like, today we're learning how to roll joints, bud. We're learning how to roll joints. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't the best for a while either. I, I had to eventually learn along the way, but that's pretty funny, dude. Yeah, my friend was, he was sick and tired of watching me stuff come. He's like, not, no, no more, no more. So he showed me how to fish. Now I tell you what, I can fish. It's important, man, for sure. Yeah, no, I have 100%, 100%. So currently, do you smoke a lot of weed or flour? No, no, I tried, tried not to. My body definitely thanks me when I don't smoke it. Ash and rosin is just way cleaner form. For me to take my medicine. So, yeah. Yeah, it's always interesting to see people's evolution. I don't smoke almost, I don't really smoke flour either. Just very. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, when I'm, when I'm with uh, the crew and I'm hanging out, you know, we're all hanging out and uh, they want to smoke hash holes and stuff, then I'll smoke, you know, I'll smoke a hash hole, but I only, I only go to a certain point and then I'm good. Right. You know? Then I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take a couple of dabs here. You wanna take a dab? Do a smoke break? Uh, yep. All right, cool. Shout out to our sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro Glass, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass, where they've continued innovating functional glass art for over the last 20 years through the vision and creativity of artist JP Toro. JP has been exploring his passion for cannabis, glass, and function over the last two decades to be at a point where his designs are now taking dabbing to a whole new level for all of us. He's introduced us to the concept of the slurper through his desire and curiosity to explore a different airflow concept for quartz. He comes up with things that look awesome that are equally as awesome and function like his jet cyclers, which come in a range of styles to exploring exciting colorways on a variety of their rigs and pipes, including a recent favorite of mine, the crayon yellow jet perk. So whether you're looking for quartz or high end glass art that focuses on high end function and design, visit Toro who stays at the forefront of innovation at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So you've been growing for quite a while now and I asked you this in a private conversation, but I'll ask you again. Do you feel like you can always dial it in more? Absolutely. Yes, you can definitely dial it in more. There's always different tips and tricks that you can do, you know, in certain weeks, you know, certain time just to see what happens, you know, this, that's the one, that's the beauty of, of growing. This is a plant that's alive and anything that you do different to it is going to change the outcome, no matter what. So being able to fine tune it here and there, it, it can always be better. Another thing that goes along with that, I feel like, is you said that you like kind of being able to push these live plants to the limit to a certain degree. And that what you find interesting about that is that by pushing the limits in one regards, it eventually kind of branches out and makes you push the limits in maybe a different regard. 
I grow for a specific reason, you know, to I grow for heads is what I do. And so I try to push these plants to their limit to grow, you know, the best head that they can. There's always that balance that you need to find, you know, whether you're pushing it, you know, with nutrients, with, with lighting, with heat, with cold, you know, there's always that, there's always that balance that you need to find. You know, I think once you, uh, once you find that, then you can even fine tune it, you know, thus far. What's one of the bigger fine tunes that you've made recently to your practices? Temperature and watering for sure. You know, just trying to do uh, different watering practices and different temps have helped us just to dial in a couple of strains, you know, some strains, they prefer less water, you know, and so just trying to microfeed, you know, small amounts a couple times per day, we've noticed has, uh, has improved, you know, on the growth. By temperature, are you talking about, for example, like temperature of the room that these plants are growing in? Yeah, ambient temperatures for sure. So we like to keep the rooms a little, little cooler. Do you find like that has been producing better resin in those plants? You know, I think so. You know, also, also um, our harvesting methods have changed and that's definitely helped us. We go to harvest in like smaller increments. So we'll all tackle one plant and we only allow the, the material that's been broken down in a bag to be left in a bag for a short amount of time and then it goes directly into the freezer versus uh, we would chop you know like a whole plant a couple of plants and then whittle throughout the plant so that by the time you get to the mid and or bottom of that plant you can tell that those heads are a little thickier you know and just as you're as you're cutting it up just to that little bit of heat you know so i think by shortening the amount of time that the material is just being in that room, you can shorten that time. So it's literally moments and it goes right into the freezer every time. You know, there's little to no disruption of those heads, right? Because there's not a lot of handling. And when you go to wash that material, you don't get you don't get a lot of broken um, debris. You don't, you don't, at least what I noticed. But most importantly, you get these really nice round hole heads. Every tray that I pull out just looks beautiful, you know. I think it just gets better and better. And you've seen that translate into the color of the rosin? Not only the color of the rosin, just like, just the size. You know, just the shape of the of the head, you know, of the hashed. You know, like I'm I'm talking about the hat. The, the rosin itself has been exceptionally well. The the creaminess, the complexities, the the texture. You know, like every everything that the, the final product does have to offer has has been has been exceptionally well. You know, it, it's definitely helped the end product look a lot lot better just by changing a few little things 
Absolutely. This uninterrupted kind of visual of the hits, are you seeing this on a freeze dryer tray? Yeah, freeze dryer, yes, sir. On the freeze dryer trays, once I'm pulling them out, you know. And one of the strategies you told me that you guys have started using in order to get this fresh frozen basically kind of chopped and into the freezer quickly is you, like five of you work on one plant at one time, it gets done, and then you move on to the next one versus multiple people working on multiple plants at once. Yeah, yeah. You know, like like I had stated before, you know, because, you know, one garden likes to, to grow a nice hardy plant and it takes quite some time to break that entire plant down. And so, like I said, we would just break it all down, bring it out, and then work on it slowly versus now we'll go work at that same plant, but in one little section. So we take that little section, break it down real quick, goes into the freezer. Grab another little section, break it down real quick, goes right into the freezer versus taking that whole plant down and then trying to work at it. Because now, by the time we get to the middle or ending of that plant, those heads, like I said, have just a little bit of time to start drying, warming up. And I've noticed that when I go to run it, when I go to wash it, my some strains that my bags and my tools, they'll grease up, even though it's 35 degrees in my room, you know, my, my tools are sitting in water and ice. And when I go to pull that stuff out, the stuff creases up. And I, and I know why that material was doing it, you know, because it got warm versus when I had ran, you know, batch prior of the same material and everything was smooth. So once we fix that, I definitely noticed a big difference, you know, just working the material in while I'm washing it. How big do you feel like these subtle changes? Oh, yeah. So I think the smallest things are make the biggest changes. So speaking of, let's go back to the microfeedings. That's something that you've changed up in your cultivation practices lately. Talk to us about how you've seen that change and what really exactly is kind of a microfeeding in your words. We just noticed that the, the the plants just look a lot healthier. They grow they grow a lot faster. Microfeeding is just instead of uh, giving the plant full gallon of food or you know gallon and a half of food, you're only you know you're going to take that gallon and a half and spread it out in three or four feedings throughout the day. So you're just breaking what you're feeding it, just breaking it apart. And what Slowly. do you feel like that does from the plant? Like. You said that it makes them search. Yeah, yeah. It makes them search for food. It makes them search. It makes them thrive. It makes them grow. It just makes them go into overdrive. And that's happening during these periods that other people have referenced and yourself as drybacks? Yeah. So kind of walk us backwards. Now you're doing the microfeedings. What were you doing prior to that? And watering. So go in there, mix, you know, my nutrients and then just uh, hand water and it was uh, drained to waste. What do you feel like automation has brought to your garden in yourself as well? It gave me a lot more family time. It freed me up. 
it freed me up to do a lot of other things, a lot of other things, you know, not, not just being with my family, but just uh, other things in the garden, you know, definitely was a game changer. It's yeah. So going back to the idea that when you first started getting into cultivating, you wanted to be in the garden all the time. And you joked about the fact that being in the garden all the time doesn't make the plants grow any faster. Do you feel like automation is the way? Yes. You know, because like I said, you know, it's just like any, any, anything new, you want to submerse yourself. You, you want to know everything there is to know about what you're doing. And then once you figure it out, then you become smart and say, wait a minute, I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. Why was I even doing that? And then you, t- you start to, you start to take away all of these little things that you realize you're actually probably doing wrong or, you know, doing bad to the plan or, or whatever it is you're doing. And then, uh, you, you, you start to notice like the effects. I think it just goes back with, uh, keeping it simple. And as long as you keep it simple, it'll all work out. And I'm just trying to be, just trying to keep it simple. What size pots are you currently using? Twos. Are the plants in those twos for the entirety of their life cycle? Yeah. I mean, what, once, they, once they get switched over into the flower room, yeah. And typically, what type of height are you seeing from those two-inch pots? Obviously, according to the genetics. Uh, you know, I like to keep them that, that three and a half, four foot range. And where they, they like to finish out. Have you grown in bigger pots before? Yes. And what's the reason now for choosing the twos? They're a lot faster. The turnaround time. Yeah, just everything. And as a brand now, how often are you guys harvesting? Well, we have a couple of gardens. So between all the gardens, we harvest fairly often. We try to keep, you know, things going. so. We don't, we don't run out, you know, but we are, we are still all small single source gardens, nothing big. Is that an important aspect to you of the brand? Yeah. You know, I mean, Hey, we all have families and stuff. So that's number one, you know, we, we take care of the families and we, we're doing our family thing, but then, you know, we have the garden and these gardens are big enough, but yet small enough that we're, we're each one of us are able to maintain them. I think that's that's key because everybody brings something, you know. We and then we all come together, you know. Like like I had told you, you know, before, the circles like Voltron. We all we're all doing our own thing, you know. But then we all come together like Voltron, and it's scary. Do you think that that same quality can be scaled up? Yes, absolutely. With the right team, and anything is possible. Anything is possible. Yeah, with the right team and mindset, anything is possible. How about the types of tools you have with that team? Is that just as important to scale up? Absolutely. You know, you're only as good as your tools, right? Is what they say. Tools are very important. And in this case, it's particularly intriguing because as of late, you've got an opportunity to get involved with the recreational market there as well. Yes. I'm going to be taking this brand to the rec market, to the Washington rec market here. 
working with the company. And so they're just got done building me a brand new facility, brand new lab. Now I'm running the Osprey and uh, we're going to see what she does. Uh, I've, I've uh, heard great things. I've already ran it, you know, a handful of times and that machine is a beast, you know? So now it's just a matter of seeing what she does with some really, really good material, you know? I think anything is possible as long as you know how to use your tools. I'm excited. So in the context of being a cultivator and a hash maker, what are some of those tools that you feel you'll need to be able to be successful within the recreational realm? A great team, I think, first off, because without that team, you won't be seen, you know? I mean, you as a hash maker, it's all you do. That's your job. You make hash, you know, just because you make good hash doesn't mean it's going to get sold. You need, you need a great team that's going to go out there and put that product out there in all of the, in the customers, in the consumer spaces, you know, but after the team, like I said, it, it definitely goes back to the material. You need great, you need, you need fire material. Once again, fire in, fire out. And once you have that material, then Having the right tools is key. The rest is easy, you know. Once you have the skill set to extract those heads, you know, I, I think that's the easy part. The hard part is is really having the team to put it out there. So talk to us about this opportunity because if I remember correctly, this is the second opportunity that you had to possibly get involved in the rec market. And the first one you decided was not for you. What made you interested in this one? Just what these guys are doing, just on the scale that they're doing it at, they've got they've got a sixty thousand square foot facility, all indoor. It's a two tiered system, something that I've never seen before. You know, when I when I walked into the facility, I was just blown away by the size and how well they've taken care of not just one room but all of the rooms. The, the the mother plants, the clones, just every everything, you know, they they they're doing a great job, you know. And so I was really excited to to see what could happen. It was an opportunity that um I think I couldn't let pass up. So how do you grow fire within the recreational market, specifically regarding genetics? Well, you gotta have the right genetics, eh? I mean <laughs> Plain and simple. <laughs> you know, you can't grow mids and expect to get high-end material. It's not going to happen. So, I mean, once you have your genetics, then, you know, the rest is kind of takes care of itself. Between genetics and showing the plant love every day, then you're, you're going to get great material. So how does it work in this case where it's, I don't know if collaboration is the right word. Are you bringing in your own genetics? Are they running some of their genetics? Is it a combination? It's a combination of both. So, you know, obviously, you know, they're, they're up and running right now and they have, you know, a bunch of their cultivars. And so when, when they approached me, they asked me if I had anything that I wanted to bring in. And so there's some stuff that I'm bringing in. And uh, so what will happen is when their material, when it comes down time, 
to harvest their material, then, you know, I'll go and I'll run, you know, that material, that material will be under a collaborative brand of, you know, theirs and mine. And then uh, they're going to dedicate an entire room that's, I want to say it's like a 120 light room that'll be dedicated just specifically for me and my strains and my brand. So when that room gets done, then I'll run that room and that material will be specifically for, you know, just my brand. Interesting. And how do you feel about now getting, you know, this 160 light room to basically do your thing? It's a blessing. Like I said, I'm living my dreams. I I never would have thought that I would be doing this, you know, not only as for a living, but to be able to go to a facility that, you know, has over a thousand lights and, you know, on a daily basis, just like, wow. And to be able to call it my home and, and work with the individuals that I'm working with, because the individuals that are there at that farm, they're all absolutely amazing individuals. And that was one of the, that was probably the, the main thing that, uh, that got me to, to say yes is the group of individuals, not only the owner, the investor, the, the manager, the master grower, but his assistants, the, the packaging department, the, you know, like the manager, like everyone, everyone that I, cause I, I went there a bunch of times and I hung out. I just hung out and nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew what I was doing, but I just hung out and I just tried to get to know those people. And they're all great, great individuals. So I was like, man, how do you not work with the group of people like, like this is a pretty cool place. You know, I, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of other po- folks and, and they worked in the industry and they're like, oh man, I hate coming to work or I hate doing this, man. It's like, dude, I can't even, I can't even ask for a garbage can type you know, I'm mean, and I was like, wow, I can, I can ask, I can ask for anything and they'll give it like no problem. You know, so I'm extremely blessed. I, I know that. Definitely know that, you know, definitely know that. Do you think it'll be a major learning curve? Absolutely. I mean, you have to understand, I, I've been working out of my basement in my garage for the last X number of years. And now you're, I mean, <laughs> 120 light room, Jack, that just says my name, you know, like that's, come on, not to mention the other, you know, you know, however many lights that they want to give me, but I mean, the, the facility's going to have over a thousand lights. Like I said, just for me to walk in there every day is, I'm just blown away. Just blown away how this group, this group of individuals can, on a daily basis, just crush and keep these plants healthy. I mean, they have in their mom, they got, they, in 10 gallon pots, they got plants that are 12, 16 foot tall. I mean, it's a jungle. They got a hundred of them in there. I walked in there one day. It was a jungle, bro. Blown away. And I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Will your 120 lights also be on the double stacked? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a double stack system. All LEDs. So what's 
been the learning curve so far just on the double stack alone? Air movement. Air movement. So my room isn't up and running. So the rooms that they have going, that's what they that's that's what they're finding out. They developed their own system that they put in that runs alongside the racks. And what it does is it it pushes air up and over the canopy so there's no stagnant air, which is really nice. And it, I mean, that literally fixed the problem overnight. It's one thing about this farm. They have, they have their own everything on hand, their own electrician, their own handyman, their own, I mean, everyone is right there, you know? And so when, when a problem does, does arise and a group of individuals check it out, figure it out. Oh. And this actually kind of plays in well with you wanting to keep plants to about being three or four feet in those two gallon pots because I'm well, assuming kind of about that size double stack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know that that's how I run my gardens. You know, here they'll uh, they'll definitely be uh, around that size, maybe a little shorter. So talk to me about the LEDs because that's not something that we really talked about earlier in some of the changes you've made to your growing practices, but I believe that's a relatively recent change for you as well. Yeah, oh yeah, you know, definitely the new LEDs changed the game for me because, I mean, A, it allowed for less heat, lower cost. I mean, we, we I had to put a heater in my room during the winter time, you know? I've never had to turn a heater on when I, when I switched to LEDs. During the summertime, my AC was barely coming on, you know, but just the power usage was such a game changer. Also, I've noticed, you know, the heads of the rosin itself has come out a lot nicer. The consistency is there. But I mean, and again, it's probably due to everything else that we've changed. What about the turps? Just as good? Yes, sir. Absolutely. This is good. Maybe even better. How about yields? Yes. On on some. Uh, there was one. No, there was two cultivars that I mean maybe it was maybe it was me, but I ran it twice still and it just they didn't they didn't do well. I, I definitely think certain strains do better with LEDs than others. For sure, so much seems to be genetic dependent. Uh, across yes yeah yeah absolutely 100 percent. well cool you're down for another smoke break yes all right let's do it shout out to the homie and newest sponsor zach brown glass who you can visit at zachbrownglass.com or on instagram at zachbrownglass i had a chance to hang with zach in barcelona and see just how passionate he is about his work and about making everyone's dabs around him that much better so it's easy to see why his V2 caps are my favorite carb caps on the market. Not only do they seal perfectly, like every single cap seals perfectly, but they also have a beautiful feel to them when using them. So if you're looking to enhance your experience with each and every dab, grab the best carb caps on the market at ZachBrownGlass.com. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So you told me that you're personal smoke, what you prefer is the third wash. Why? I mean, I think it's just, uh, it's, it's not much, but it always just comes out a little creamier. 
I always think, you know. And it's the lo- it's the lower grade stuff. A lot of people don't like to smoke it, but I do. I just do. And sometimes with some cultivars that are gassy, different notes start to come out, you know, in different washes. And there's a couple of trains that I watched that, you know, on that third wash, it's a different complexity that comes out. And, and I like those complexities versus the first wash, you know. Don't get me wrong, the first wash is, is great, you know, but sometimes I just like to switch it up and be a little different. So in your products, what is going into basically your rosin that's going to customers? Oh, all, all, just all the tops, you know, the first and seconds, you know, and then any, anything that's less, it's, you know, it's either food grade or um, turn it into carts. Now, has that first and second changed at all since you're using the a bigger machine like the Osprey now? Uh, I'm not using an Osprey. Uh, I still hand wash. I only use the Osprey when I'm at my rec facility, but I mean, other than that, we still hand wash everything. And what are your typical cycles for hand washing for that first and second wash? Oh, like how many grams do I wash? Well, that too, but also or, just like how long are the cycles that you're washing those grams for? Oh, uh, so typically we do, you know, like four to 6,000 gram runs and the first couple washes, it's, you know, any, anywhere between uh, three to five minutes, sometimes less. Does that change from like cultural? Yeah, no, it, yeah and it changes. It def- absolutely. It changes. You know, like, like I said, sometimes less. Why is your preference to hand wash the personal garments for now? It best suits my situation. I just prefer it. But, I mean, I have, I, I have an extremely small space that I wash in. There's no machine that's out there that, that fits my my situation. If there is a machine out there, then maybe, but I mean, other than that, man. And I mean, yes, I could I could use the uh, 20 gallon washers and I can um, manipulate them and whatnot, but I, mean, I don't know. It's just like being a rookie grower and just wanting to be there all the time and just wanting to get your hands on it still. I'm still trying to figure out things, I think, you know, with, with my techniques. And so it's always really nice just to be as hands-on as possible, constantly watching the material, looking to see what it's doing, you know, because we don't take, don't take long for that material to, to change from being great to being bad. You can definitely tarnish or ruin your end product if, if you're not uh, watching out what you're doing. And when you said earlier, for example, that it changes from strain to strain, is part of that like you keeping an eye while you're hand washing and being able to see those changes, for example, in the water and the color and the shift of these different things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like I said, I'm a visual learner. So me watching what is going on, that's when I now, you know, I'm just like, oh, okay, now I know, now I know, now I know. Me constantly watching. That's it. So every time, I, you know, the more I watch, the more I learn. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that develops for you. Like you said, with the cultivating, you've been doing it in this kind of style, for example, versus the hash for longer. And, you know, you've gone more automated. So I'll be curious to see how you shift in that or if you shift at all. You know, that's definitely a major topic. It's a major topic. <laughs> 
So you talked about yeah. carts. Carts are pretty popular right now. What are your personal feeling about carts? Do you like consuming them? They have their place. I will say this. And I just got back from Vegas here this weekend. And so, you know, having a cart on me was great because, I mean, as soon as I get off the airport or get off the airplane and I'm right out of the airport waiting for the Uber, I popped it out of my, my pocket and started puffing, you know, for the longest time. I, I definitely didn't like carts and didn't want to do carts. And so I didn't. But once again, comes back to it's not about me. It's, it's what the customers and consumers wanted. And so we started doing them and, and they've definitely worked out. You know, they, like I said, they have their place. Do you feel like carts make growing for resin even more viable, for example, than just rosin? Yes. Yes, because, I mean, just like with everything, there's levels to this, right? Mm -hmm. Eventually, you know, that mid-grade individual, they, they want it too. You know, the low-grade individual, they want it too. And uh, it'll be available for them soon. It's just a matter of time. Do you ever release any milk? Uh, yeah, we do. It's rare, but it happens. So we, uh, we did a little bit just recently. And what was it that you released as milk? The grease bucket, the cherry, and I believe the white, no, the Gorilla Glue. So you're still running the original Gorilla Glue? That's correct. But since you brought it up, you said... Another one that you run is the white truffle. You said it has some similarities to, say, a, gor a gorilla. Yeah, it's more of a meatier flavor. And that white truffle genetics comes from? Belief, I believe. When seeking for genetics in your garden, are you mostly popping seeds to look for stuff? Or are you taking on clones? Or is it a mix? Now we are doing seeds. So just switched up the seeds. But I mean, the last couple of years, I really wasn't doing any much hunting because I was just running, you know, the strains that I have. I've got a great friend of mine that I've been friends with since, since I was young, that uh, he's, he's been a hoarder of genetics. And so he's he's got like 50, you know, strains. And there really was no need to go look anywhere because if I wanted anything new, I just go down to the librarian and ask the man. But now everybody wants these, you know, new things. And so we've, we've been starting to hunt through new gear. And that one of them was, was that grease bucket, you know, that, that uh, my buddy Ross Bacco found. How important do you think it is moving forward to continue popping seeds and finding your own unique profiles, I guess, if you could call it that? It's extremely important because it's going to set you apart from everyone else. You know, if you can build a menu that nobody else has, you're going to flourish. You're building, you know, your own community. You're building your brand. I mean, yeah, you're winning at that point. It's hard. It's hard to compete with somebody that has, has things that nobody else has, you know, because... And this this market's so watered down. Everybody's got that Z cut. Everybody's got that, you know, whatever. Everybody's got that, you know. But that one guy, man, he doesn't want to sell nothing. You know, that guy don't want to get nothing on. Sometimes you got to be a hoarder. 
So out of the genetics that you were able to access from your buddy, the librarian, how many of those were hashers? We, we, uh, we've really never gone through all, you know, all of uh, his genetics just because there's so many, you know, and most of them I don't want to run. I'll be honest with you. I've just been so stuck on the the cherry and GMO for the longest time that I really hadn't wanted to run anything else in my personal garden. So it wasn't until the last couple of years that the brand started going that we started doing other stuff. But like in my personal gardens, I, I still try to keep it, you know, to my cherry or you know just to to the ones that I that I really like. And the, the other gardens that we have going, that's where the new streams are are starting to be put out, you know. But I'm just one of those individuals who just can't let things go, I think. <laughs> Has it been interesting for you cultivating for a while, seeing genetics and, for example, in this case, genetics that wouldn't have been used for flower at all be something that can be introduced into the hash market and flourish, for example? Oh, uh, am, am I surprised? Has it been interesting in a way? Well, it's, man, it's funny you said that because uh, when I was making hash way back in the day, we would always find that the strains that were super poopy that didn't look visually appealing always did great for hash. And I was like, huh, wow, isn't that interesting? And so I, I've always known about it. And so now... Now that it's coming to light type still, you know, it's, it's great. It's, I mean, man, everybody, we all need to know it's, it's, it's great that everybody's finding out that, you know what? Let's start growing for heads and not for dry flowers. Right. And so, so now we're, we're starting to think, you know, we're, we're starting to become more aware that, you know, it's not about the visual aspect of the cultivar, you know, like let's, Let's really look into this plant and see what's really going on about it. A buddy of mine had came over and he had four different phenos of this one cultivar and I ran it for him and three of them were purple. One of them was like black purple, but three of them were purple. And the other one wasn't so purple, but it had this super nice creamy lavender, like a very, 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 very light paint, like you really had to look at it, you know. Other than that, it was, you know, white. But that thing dumped like six times than what the other three did. And I told him, I was like, "Hey, this is, you know, the whole skin." He's like, "Oh wow, that one looked the ugliest. It was green when it was growing. It's just everything about it was garbage." Right. He was like, "Those other three looked absolutely stunning." They were gorgeous. They were beautiful. Everything about them. And I was like, well, those are for dry flowers. That is for hash making. Yeah, it's interesting when you strip it down to the resin, how like the opinion can shift basically. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because he was like, well, man, I'm thinking this way. He was like, when I should be thinking this way. So it's nice to get people to start switching because... You know, at the end of the day, you know, what's the overall goal? Are you growing to for dry flowers or are you growing for ash and rosin? It's two different, two different styles of growth, I think. 
you told me that you don't feel like all resin is created equal. So tell me what it takes to stay in your stable or at least something new. Like, what are you looking for? It's, it, you know, it's got to check all boxes type thing. The smell has to transfer over, you know, from flower to final product. If there's no smell and it's muted, so, I mean, the color definitely, you know, how much it throws, you know, it's just the percentage of, of weight that Fino does. But, you know, definitely has to check those boxes, you know, in, in, in order to hang around. Also, the effect, like, what's the effect? Because like I said, I, I'm always looking for something that's extremely heavy and sedative. Is it going to affect me? Yes or no. And you talked about the transfer from flour to hash or rosin in this case, but also there's like this additional layer where it's like a transferring from the hash and rosin smell to the actual taste as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, but I, I think it all also comes back to like how the material was grown, how it was harvested, like all of those practices lead up to that, to that final look, smell, taste, all of that. So I, I think everything from start to finish, like it all plays, plays a major role on, on how that flavor profile is going to taste at the very end. You told me you don't like resin that is dry. Why? It's just, it's not my style. It's just dirty. I, having to work it, put it on a dabber. I don't know. I just prefer something that's more like putty that I can dig right into, pull up, and it's not going to go anywhere. I can place it on you know, table, it's not going to fall, crumbles, or any, you know what I mean? So it definitely comes down to like cleanliness. Do you think in part look matters in the sense that like the resin could smoke really good, could get you super ripped, but there's just something about that visual that, you know, stops people? Yeah, you know, visually, I, I don't think the visual aspect, you know, matters because... There's, you know, a lot of stuff that's sun-grown, you know, when you get back and it's got this super amber heads and that stuff just puts you down, bro. Like, you, you would think that was way overdone and, you know, da 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 but bro, you, but you go to smoke it and it's a wrap for you. Right. So just because just, just it looks brown or, you know, it's got that, that amber Color to man, don't judge it. Don't judge your book. Have you changed when and how you take plants down since you moved over to Fresh Frozen? No, just because, I mean, I've always harvested uh, at a point to where I like my plants to be sedative, you know, on the heavier side. And so I, I try to, you know, keep it true. I mean, my deal is I want I want a nice, mature, ripened head. I, I don't want anything that's that's underdeveloped. You know, that's going to be that five second up. You know, speedy high and then back down. Now, now we need another one. I want to take one and have it smack. So I, I know there's there's a lot of people that that are out there that that'll cut. Seven, fourteen days, you know, some, some, some even earlier. It's weird, you know. But also, I've heard from someone that, like, if they don't cut it at day forty-three, then the terps just go mute, and then it's done, and it's no good, you know. But then it's like, well, okay, well, what's the percentage on it? 
and it's, you know, uh, it was just little, little over a 1%, you know, and it's like, it's crazy. But he's like, bro, but the people pay for it. That's just it. Like, so there, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, there's this balance, there's this balance that, that you got to find, you know, it's like, do these cultivars fit well in your program? Yeah, it is interesting. Like you said, you have to find what works for you and what you're doing in a way. Yep. You know, you do, you do, you know, because even if I were to give you the same cut and you were in another town or whatever, well, what if those people don't like that style of turps? And it, it was like, dude, that was my worst seller ever. <laughs> but yeah, why is it your number one? Like, how was that happening? You know, that's just the clientele he built up or just, you know, like some, some people in, you know, some areas, they're all about fruits, you know, just like, for instance, that we were talking about earlier, they all like fruit. Everything was all about fruits to them. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, like I said, it's tricky because a lot of it does have to do with personal preference. But like you mentioned, there's other things that kind of like play into uh, whether it's geography or like taste or honestly exposure too. Like if all these people smoke, such a major, you know, so yeah, the exposure, you're so true. Yeah, absolutely. 100% boss. You know, like that's, that's all I was exposed to, you know, was, was that gas back in the day. And that's, that's what I've, all I've known, you know, that's what I've grown accustomed to. Yeah, likewise. I, I, you know, there's, there's things that I prefer too, but you got to think that some of that has to do with like anything else, right? Like when it came into your life, what was available then? And like all these things. Yep. Oh yeah. No, 100, 100%. Well, cool. Noah, I really appreciate you hanging out with me this long, man. I'll start winding it down. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is your washroom at the commercial facility versus for example some of the washrooms for the personal gardens okay so my washroom at my at my rec facility is 20 by 20 foot room it's got an osprey i've got all the bells and whistles to it got the the neck i've got the 400 gallon reservoir with the chiller on there and uh, a wash basin in there i mean everything you need to uh to do production for sure oh and i also have four large pharmaceutical freeze dryers and two low temp three by five plate pressures at home i have a five by seven room in my garage that I've insulated, that I hand wash in. I've got a small pharmaceutical freeze dryer. I've got one three by five low temp press that I use to press. So it's pretty uh, dramatic on on the diff on the size difference. What was the experience like being able to do that build out, like you mentioned earlier, and them just being like, whatever you need, you got it. Mind blown. Mind blown when they asked me what I wanted and he was like, and when I tell you what you want, I want you to shoot for the stars and moons. <laughs> cool. And then some, I mean, like, whoa, I was just blown away. You know, I mean, I really didn't even know what to say at that point. 
This may be a difficult question to answer, but why do you think this opportunity has presented itself to you in particular? Because I'm a good person. That's pretty simple. I worked, I worked hard. Yep. A lot of hard work. Being a good person. Yeah. Not burning bridges, you know, because uh, the individual that connected me with this farm, I have been friends with for over 30 years. And it just goes to show you, never burn your bridges. You be kind, you know, be true to your word. Just be kind. Pretty simple. What do you see in the future for Hanzo Gardens, including entering the rock market? You know, yeah, it's a hard question. I see it growing as a brand, building a community, you know, around it is, is what I do see, you know. I see other individuals, my friends, my family, the ones that I care about going to flourish off of what's to come. I think that's the greatest. I think that's the greatest thing is, is to be able to see what it does for the rest of my family and friends. I'm a pretty simple individual. Talk to us a little bit about a seed project that you're going to be doing. Yes. So uh, my buddy, Josh Steedland, he has he has a company, a seed company, Thielen Thico, and um, another friend of mine, James Ayers. He has a, a company called Stoltemple Genetics, and so we're bringing those two companies together and uh, doing a seed line uh, with uh, both of them. We've got some stuff going on in the works right now, Stone Temple Genetics. He has a bunch of stuff that uh, that he's been working on the last couple of years that Josh just released, I want to say, within the last couple of days. So you guys, uh, so they can go and go on there on, the, on Josh's site and, and grab those packs. Uh, we're going to be doing, we're in the process of doing some cherry kush crosses. That's going to be in the works this year. So. Yeah, we have uh, we have a bunch of stuff coming out. So, yeah, yeah, stay tuned. Cool, exciting. These are always tough questions, but if you had to pick your favorite Washington hash brand outside of Hanzo Garden, who would it be? Oh, man. Wreck or not? That's up to you. Oh, I would have to say... My homie Kaya with Pacific Northwest Roots. Yeah, Kaya's got the fire. Final question. Your favorite three hash makers? Cuban Grower. Kaya. Uh, I've, been, I've been smoking a lot of my buddy... Uh, Feared extracts. I've been smoking a lot of their gear this year too. So definitely would have to throw him there too. Did you say that was cured? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, and shout out to Ozzy, honestly, because I know that you guys linked a few years ago and uh, you know, we didn't really talk about it, but I find that he's been, you know, pretty influential person to your specifically in your hash 
career, if you want to call it that. Ozzy's, Ozzy's my mentor. There's no words. There's no amount of words that I could put or say on how much he has guided me. He's he's shown me what uh, what it, what it is to be not only a hash maker, but but a father and a good friend. He's one of my best friends. I, uh, I definitely owe him a lot. Yeah, you know, I owe that gentleman a lot. Yeah, funny enough, I always tell him the same thing in my regards to, you know, like doing that interview with him so many years ago now, I feel was like really impo- important for any of this to, uh, to kind of unfold either. So, uh, so yeah, shout out to Aussies. He's a good dude. Yes. Yeah. He, he's the, the man. He is the man. And, uh, I can, I just wanted to definitely wanted to shout out my crew. Ross Baca, Small Circle Hat, Booth Cone Fit, you know, those three guys, my nephew Elijah. They've been the backbone in the last year. So they've definitely helped help this company flourish to uh, to what it is today. Those guys. Small circle. Woo. That guy. He's a real hero. Yeah, no man, that's very cool. I can tell that you guys are, are a tight-knit group, and I think that's been part of your success, and uh, I'm wishing you all the success moving into the rec market and with everything you do, and again, man, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. You can follow Noah on Instagram again, at Hanzo underscore gardens or at Hanzo underscore gardens 2.0. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Thank you for the opportunity that you gave me. You know, I really appreciate it. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate you uh, giving me the time to like, give or talk to uh, talk to everyone. Tell them a little bit about myself. Yeah, of course, bro. It was my pleasure. Honestly, it's been really nice talking to you the few times that we've talked. And, uh, you know, I look forward to meeting you whenever our, our paths cross. Well, we will. We will. We will. All right, Noah, I appreciate you. Everybody who kept up with us this long, I appreciate you, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.